Good evening, good evening. There we are. Good evening. I invite you to grab a seat. It is 7 o'clock straight up. And so if you're here, you're the winner. If you're not here, you're not the winner. I invite you to find your seat. You probably already found your coffee. That's a good thing. We are here to do what we were talking about on Sunday, to deepen our roots in Jesus, to make this year a better year than last year, to grow stronger in Jesus. And we're a Bible-teaching church, and we're a Bible-teaching church because we don't just think that the, the Bible contains the words of God. We're a Bible-teaching church because this is <laughs> the Word of God. And if we want to grow deeper in Christ, if we want to grow more faithful in, uh, with the Lord, if we want to... Um, if we want to fervently follow him, then we're going to read his truth. And so that's what we do on Wednesday nights. We, verse by verse, we study the Bible. And so if this is your first time doing something like this, you deserve a high five. I mean, coming here two, two uh, days in a week is a pretty big deal, and I recognize that. It's a sacrifice to come another day of the week to get your kids all... Uh, going again after they got home and to get dinner done real quick and to get everybody back out here on a Wednesday night. I appreciate it. Uh, and I don't think you're going to regret it, though. Your kids are going to grow to love Wednesday nights. It might take them a week or two to kind of get used to the new surroundings and the new teacher and whatever. But uh, your kids are going to love it. They're going to want to come on Wednesday nights even when we're not having this. They're going to beg you to come, and you're going to say, no, there's no one there. Well, we're going to go anyway. You can come and sit in the parking lot all you want. It'd be great. And there'll probably be times when you don't want to come either. I get it. There are going to be hard nights when you have a long day at work or you have a long drive home, long commute home on the 91 freeway or uh, the drama with the, the, the family or whatever it is. It's just kind of really overwhelming. You're not going to want to come and you're just going to rather sit on, on your couch and watch Netflix. I totally get it. And you might even have this feeling of guilt come over you. Oh, no. If I don't know, if I don't go to Wednesday night, Pastor Nathan's going to know. And he's going to pray against me, and, and he's going to move my house in heaven from Palm Beach to Death Valley, and so I better go just because I'm going to feel guilty. And as I say, every single Wednesday night at the beginning, my ministry is not about making you feel guilty for church attendance. That's not my ministry. My ministry is simply to Cast your eyes on Jesus, your heart and mind on Christ. So my goal here is not to make you feel guilty. I want God to make you feel guilty. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 119.28 says this, My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Let me read that again. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Yeah, well, I mean, we're going to have grief. We're going to have a life full of grief. You might have some Wednesdays full of grief. Your boss at work might give you some grief on a Wednesday. Uh, your commute home might be some grief on a Wednesday. That's kind of lighthearted grief almost. But the Bible tells us that it's God's Word that gives us strength in the grief. The reason that we study God's Word is to have strength in the difficult times. And so on those Wednesday nights when you're like, ah, I don't want to go, I've had a really bad day, that's probably like the day you should come. Okay? I give you permission to not come on the days that are super easy, no problems at all. Okay? Don't come on those days, but come on the days that are difficult because it is God's word that is our strength 
to get us to get us through all these things. So the plan for tonight, if you haven't done one of these before, we're here seven to eight o'clock sharp. We'll end by eight. We have a break uh, halfway through, and that break is for sugar. One, uh, we have a couple people who have uh, made homemade cookies for us, and as you stand in line to get those cookies. On that table, there's going to be this cookie sign-up sheet because we would like others of you to participate in said cookie uh, production in future weeks. So two people bring uh, homemade cookies each week if you so desire. And so I see a lot of empty blanks on this page. And so make sure you fill in the next fill in next week first. You know, don't fill in like the week ten. What does that do us? We we want cookies. We want cookies next week. So fill in that that one. Um, and, uh, and we'll kind of enjoy the time. The purpose of that time also is for fellowship. We talked about that a little bit on Sunday, that we don't have a lot of common ground from the job that we came from today. We probably came from different places today. We probably had different experiences today. We're probably thinking about different things today. We probably had uh, different disagreements with people today. But now here we are all together, and the reason that we can fellowship together is because of this common ground that we're building, even in studying God's Word tonight, and so that we can build each other up, encourage each other. And so when we dismiss for our break, you might be sitting around somebody you don't know, and so when you get up and say hi to them, you could say, hi, my name is Nathan. What's your name? And they'll say, oh, well, my name is Susie. I've been coming here for 20 years. How long have you been coming here, Nathan? <laughs> Well, I've been coming here 22 years, so uh, nice to meet you finally for the first time. And so the purpose of the fellowship time is, yes, to eat sugar, but it is also to get to know each other and encourage each other and build each other up. And so we build a little bit of that in our time of Bible study uh, to tonight. I want to remind you, you have your cell phone with you probably, and I know nobody called you all day long. You've been alone or you've been begging, but... But somebody is going to call and text you in the next hour. They will. And so to prevent you from being embarrassed, and we'll we'll all point at you if your phone rings or dings, why don't you mute it now, uh, turn it off now, turn it on vibrate, whatever it is for you and your phone, so that it's just not a distraction for us this evening. Well, why don't we uh, begin with prayer, and uh, we'll jump in tonight. Well, God, we thank you for this hour that you've given us, and you thank, we thank you for your provision, your infinite grace um, in allowing us to meet tonight. We don't deserve this hour. We don't deserve the, the Bible that we are learning from. We don't deserve the, the people we are studying it with tonight. We don't deserve the wisdom that we'll receive. We don't deserve the, the confidence that we'll receive from your work tonight, but you've given it to us in your infinite grace, and we thank you for it. I pray for those teachers who are teaching down the hallway all the way from nursery to our high school ministry, that you would uh, bless them because of their faithful work of ministry, that you would uh, reward them in ways that, uh, that I never could. And I pray for those kids that in, in a year-right time that they would put their faith and trust in your son early in life and avoid some of the mistakes that we have by following you and making decisions that would please you earlier, or earlier in their life than, than we did. And so, God, we lift this evening up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, also on a Wednesday night, uh, we have an attendance sheet that we'd like you to fill out. So if you are on this side of the room, the right-hand side of the room, under your chair or something like that is a clipboard. And if you would take that out, write your name on it, and pass it down the row. Hopefully by the end of tonight, it ends up on this side of the room. And so if you're on the left-hand side of the room, just leave it on your chair down there, and that'll be great. Um, if you wouldn't mind passing those until we begin 
that would help for the people who are still filtering in so that we could get everybody on that sheet. And that just lets us know who's here so that we can keep you up to date and remind you of things just and so we can communicate directly to those of you who come on, um, come on Wednesday night. All right, well, we, as you know, are studying two uh, books of the Old Testament, Esther and Ruth. And so I'll give you kind of a head start tonight. We're going to look at Esther and so you can kind of get a head start in finding it in your Bible, because that might be, you might not have turned there in a while, no shame in using the table of contents in uh, finding that, that book. But you might wonder why, why these two books, out of the 66 books in the entire New Testament, why, why these two? Why Esther and Ruth? I suppose one of the unique things about these two books is that they're both named after women. And these are the only two books in the Bible that have a woman's name attached to them. Interestingly, neither of them are written by women. But the reason that I've picked these two, two books together are, is a way better reason than that, and a way different reason than that. Neither one of these two books mention God. That's a weird thing. Now, granted, in one of them, it kind of does. It's only the narrator, not even the people in the, in the events. Um, but generally, in these two books, God isn't even mentioned. That's kind of like a weird thing. Two entire books of the Bible that don't even mention God. And so why is that? It's important that we answer that question because the answer to that question is going to be something that you're going to notice every single week. And I won't have time to show it to you every single time it's there. And so before we even read one verse of the book of Esther tonight, or one word of the book of Esther, I want to talk about why this is. Why does Esther, the book of Esther, never mention God? And the reason is because these are historical events where God's um, orchestration, where God's influence is so obvious that you don't need to put his name on it. It's called God's sovereignty. God's, God's direction of things in these two books is so clear, you, you don't need to put a name tag on it. That's, that's why. Now, there are some things that are hard to notice, and there are some things that are easy to notice. The things that are hard to notice are the things that you put a name tag on. I worked in retail, as you well know, for a lot of years before I began pastoring. And so I worked for some large retail corporations. Like I worked for Macy's as a group sales manager at Macy's. And at Macy's, everyone... Every employee in that store wears a name tag. And the reason that you wear a name tag in Macy's as an employee is so that you can differentiate who's an employee and who's a customer, right? That's what name tags are for. And that's like that in, in any place. Now, some places don't have name tags. If there are no name tags, you don't know who works there. Like, you know, at Home Depot. Home Depot, they don't have name tags. They have those, you know, the, the orange aprons, Right? And so if you wear the orange apron, you're an employee. If you're not an uh, not a orange apron wearer, you're not an employee. Now, you go, into, you go into Home Depot, and they have these people that look, they're all dressed up. They look like, they look official, and they're standing behind a little kiosk thing. They have like an air conditioner next to them, and like, they must work here. They look more official than the, than the orange apron people. But if you go up and ask them a question, they don't work there. They sell you something. You say, hey, uh, I'm, I'm looking for the plungers. 
I don't want to tell you why I need a plunger, but I'm looking for a plunger. <laughs> like, okay, sir, would, uh, when's the last time you put in air conditioning in your house? <laughs> First, let me deal with the plunger issue, and then, uh, and then we'll work from there. And so, no apron, no, no worky. Apron, yes worky. That's, that's, that's how you know. So at Macy's, you have a name tag, you work there. No name tag, you don't work there. Until, until the president of the company shows up, Steinberg. Oh my goodness. Steinberg shows up to your Macy's store. That's the biggest event ever that happened in your store. He comes with an entourage of like 15 black-suited people in, in these big SUVs. They roll up. They, they park in the fire zone. You know, No one would dare touch Steinberg. And he rolls up, and all these black-suited minions get out of these SUVs, and they're all wearing name tags. And all the employees in the store are wearing name tags. But there's one person who's not wearing a name tag. Who is that? Steinberg. That guy doesn't wear a name tag. Why? Because everybody knows who Steinberg is. That's why he's not wearing a name tag. And it's like that in these books. It's obvious where God is in this. It is so clear that God is in it, that God's name doesn't need to, to be there. It doesn't need, doesn't need to be a name tag of, oh, and God said. It is so clear of God's orchestration and God's influence, and God's purposes, and God's moving of things around to make everything completely work out the way that they should. And so these two books are going to teach this a lot. You're going to see this, this idea of God's orchestration in the background a lot. And it's going to be so much that I won't have time to point it out to you. I won't have time to, but I want you to notice that every week it's going to be an aspect of what we read and study. God's orchestration, God's influence, God's moving behind all of these things. God, direct, God directly orchestrating life is, is something that can be seen in your life as a Christian too. If you just pay attention to it, it is obvious. Now, sometimes we imagine that God doesn't work like that. Sometimes we imagine that God kind of operates like, you know, he created the world and then he, he sat back. Once he created everything and he sits back and he sits in his chair and just you know, eats his popcorn and just watches, you know, watches, watches it all, you know, watches it just like TV, and he roots for his favorite players down there. He, he hopes it all works out. So we imagine you like when we pray, we kind of imagine it like, um, like, like we're, we're asking God, hey, hey, don't forget about my channel, you know, turn to my channel and pay attention to my life for a little bit and and, and maybe you could fix a few things that you didn't know about God. And, and maybe I can bring you up to, uh, up to speed on some of the episodes that you've missed along the way. Pay attention to me for just a little bit. But that's not the way that God works. Ever since God created the world in six literal 24-hour days, he has been orchestrated and intimately and closely involved with every aspect of the entire universe. Now, there's a big word for this. It's called God's sovereignty. And, and that is really the theme of these two books. God doesn't need a name tag in any... His name doesn't need to be written down. His sovereignty is so clear in all of these areas. Sovereignty is really defined by the fact that God is in complete control of the entire universe. That is God's sovereignty. 
And so there really aren't a whole lot of verses in the Bible about God's sovereignty because you kind of have to see it. You know, you get, you, it's hard to he, just hear about it. You see it. But there's one verse that probably you would know, and it stands out to you, and it's probably the best one regarding God's sovereignty. And so I have it up here on the screen. It's Romans 8, 28, and it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is God's sovereignty. This is him orchestrating and, and intervening in all the little small moments. We couldn't ever imagine that someone had orchestrated it like that, but it just happened to work out, and my favor happened to work out the way that it should be. And what are the chances of me meeting this person at just the right place or this working out? It's God's sovereignty. Working out all of the orchestrating, all the aspects of, of life. And so a book doesn't have to say, hey, look, God did that for us to notice that, hey, look, God did that. And so that is the overarching theme of these two books. And so I hope you see those as we read through it even tonight. So what we're going to do, we're going to read just Esther chapter 1 in its entirety first before the break. And then after the break, we are going to come back and we're going to look at it uh, a, little more, a little more in depth. Okay. And so let's begin in Esther, uh, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1. Verse one. Now, there's some, there some words and some names in this that are kind of a challenge. Some we're not going to spend any time at all, and some we uh, will spend a little extra time on just so that we know who we're talking about because those are key characters in, in these events. And as I was talking to this group up here, what we are reading are true events in history. Okay, this isn't just like some story. It, yeah, I guess you could call it a story. But these are true events in history. And as we discussed tonight, these are documented in extra-biblical, historical, non-biblical writings. The events of these occurrences are, are throughout human history, not just here in God's Word. So these are, this is real history that we have access to. So let's read here, Esther chapter 1. Now, it took place in the days of, aha, we get this first, the first long name. And so when you get long names like this, I have to go to my little computer program that it pronounces it f for me uh, so I know how to, how to say it. Because when you first look at that word, you're like, Ahasuerus. But that's not, that's not how you say it. This is a Hebrew word. And it's Ahasvarash. 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 This is king. Ahasvarash. Now, he's an important character, and so we're spending some time with this. Ahasvarash. Varash, right? Now, now, it took place in the days of Ahashvarash, the Ahashvarash who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. And in those days, King Ahashvarash sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his princes and attendants and army officers of Persia and Madai. That's, that's the Medes and the Persians, okay? But it's pronounced Madai here as it's written. The nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he, this king, displayed the riches of his royal glory and splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. When the, these days were completed, the king gave a banquet 
lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti, key character in the events of today, also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to Queen Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded all of these eunuchs, his, his servants. We're not going to listen to all those names. I listened to them all and I said, skip it. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king her, with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king so to speak before all who knew the law and justice, and were close to him, and now here are some other names, kind of his key, his key minions here, seven princes of Persia and Madai, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. In the presence of the king and the princes. Now, this is one we're just going to use the most generic English uh, pronunciation that you can. There's another way to say it, but we're just going to go with Mimucan, all right? We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. Mimucan said, Queen Vashti has wronged. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the people who were in all the provinces of king Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to his presence, but she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Madai, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger." If it pleases the king, let the royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Madai, the Medes and the Persians, the law of the Medes and the Persians, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict which he will make is heard throughout the kingdom, great as it is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. 
verse 21. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimucan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to his script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. All right. So that is the passage that we are going to learn from tonight, and there's a lot there, as you can tell. So why don't we take a a 10-minute break, and the cookies and donuts are out the back door. uh, Donuts. I'm just used to saying that because it's Sunday mornings. The cookies and coffee are out the back, and I'll get you back in 10. Jump into this great chapter, Esther, Esther chapter 1. Now, the author of Esther is generally unclear though uh, the assumption is it's gonna, it, that it was written uh, by a guy that we're going to um, be, get acquainted with later on in this chapter, Mordecai. Um, but we don't know for sure exactly who, who wrote uh, this book. It was written somewhere in the 460s BC, 465 is probably the best guess. And there's a reason for that, because this chapter occurs over a 10-year period during the reign of King Xerxes. Does that name sound familiar to to you, King Xerxes? King Xerxes of Babylon? Okay, so this uh, King Ahasuerus, that's the Hebrew name for King Xerxes. And so for the rest of time, unless we're reading it here, we're going to call him King Xerxes. Is that okay? Can we come to that agreement? It's It's a lot easier for all of us. Okay, so this is King Xerxes. Um, and so he's the same guy as Ahash Varash. And so the events that are occurring here, 58 years earlier, his grandpa, the, the king, King Cyrus, he had released the Jews from their captivity. You remember the, the Babylonian captivity? You remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon had come and had kind of pillaged, uh, pillaged Jerusalem over certain uh, periods of time, and they had taken the best and the brightest back to Babylon to, uh, to be trained to, to be in their kind of new world. And so, though, this had, this had ended, and his grandpa, King Cyrus, had let the Jews go back to Jerusalem. And God told the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, uh, to rebuild the temple, and to settle there, to go back to your hometown. And all of this was in fulfillment of Isaiah and Jeremiah had prophesied that all of this was going to happen, and it did through King Cyrus, Xerxes' grandpa, 58 years before what we're reading here. However, millions of Jews decided not to go back. They decided instead of obeying God's direction they decided that they were going to stay in Persia and that they were going to benefit from all the wealth and all the, the, the wonderful aspects of Persia. And so instead of going back, they remained and benefited from the bounty that was in Persia. And that's going to matter in a couple of weeks. And that's why I kind of tell you where we find ourselves in history right now. King Cyrus has let the Jews leave, um, but not all of them did. In rebellion against God, they wanted to stay essentially what was their home in their mind by this point. Um, and now his grandson, King Xerxes, is in power, and things are good. Things are very good in, 
in the, in the nation. And so that's where we start in Esther chapter 1, verse 1, with this giant party. Verse 2, in those days, as King, uh, let's, King Xerxes, in those days, King Xerxes sat upon his royal throne, which was at the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the princes in attendance, the army officers of Persia and Madai, the nobles and the princes in the, uh, of his provinces being in his presence. This was a grand party, an enormous party, millions if not billions of dollars, a giant party. He has 127 provinces, and so each one of those provinces bought, brought a large delegation to be a part of this enormous... It's bigger than any Hollywood party, more lavish than any party that you could ever have, uh, imagine millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. One of the greatest uh, events in all of human history was this, was this party. So verse 4, he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days, an 180-day long party. This is debauchery at its best, or debauchery at its worst, however you see it. 180 days of partying. And so there was, there, was, there was more to it than just a party because King Xerxes was using this time to court all of his rulers, all the rulers of the 127 provinces, to win their support for his plan. King Xerxes had a plan. He wanted to conquer Greece. If he could conquer Greece, he would be the supreme ruler of the entire known world. That was on, in his mind. He had his sights set on Greece. He had a battle plan set on Greece. And so he needed all of his officials, all of, his, all of the, the leaders of all these provinces to buy in to this idea. And so he has this giant, massive party that he is here trying to say, hey, look, I have the money for this kind of thing, and, uh, and I think we're ready for this kind of thing. And so he is courting them for his own pleasure trying to get this thing off the off the ground and the consensus is kind of through historians that he probably would have won the war i'm kind of giving you a sneak peek behind the scenes i'm telling you the end of the story before we begin it but he probably would have won that war with greece had god not predicted that he wouldn't um and so he has this enormous battle plan of conquering the known world, and Greece was the only thing that was in his way. And so he has this uh, giant party, and then we get to verse 5. When these days were completed, the 180 days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. Oh, let's party seven more days. For all the people who were in the presence of the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least. So now, you know, the first 180 days were just the rulers, were just the princes, were just the ones that he was really trying to influence. Now, this last seven days, he adds a lot of commoners uh, to this party. Um, and this, the, the region is known as Persepolis. And this place still exists today. Persepolis is still a place today in, in, um, in what was here known as Persia. And... Uh, in 1971, they had an enormous party, an enormous festival there, 1971, celebrating the 2,500 year of the Persian Empire. And so here's some pictures of what that event... Now, this wasn't... This, this wasn't BC, these aren't pictures from B.C. They didn't quite have <laughs> iPhones back then. 
But this is pictures of Persepolis in 1971, where, where these parties occurred. And check this out. This is really interesting. If, so you could see in the upper of that picture, the upper are like all of the tents where all of the people stayed at this festival in, in 1971. And you can see all of the ruins of Persepolis right where they were. And so this is, this is like a real place <laughs> where, where these parties occurred, this giant, massive 180-day party and then this seven-day one. And so they recreated it in 1971. And you can kind of see all the gaudiness um, of, of what it looked like there, the, the golden chandeliers and, and all of the just kind of over the top. But that's exactly what this entire thing was. You remember we we're reading in, in verse 6 where it says, hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple and silver strings and marble columns. See, I mean, they're, they're, in 1971, they were really trying to duplicate the, the awe-inspiring nature of, of this um, mega party, 1971. Couldn't hold a candle to what they really did. Um, but they were uh, recreating uh, all of it. And the, there are historical writings, like I said, extra-biblical writings uh, about all of these things, about, the, about the, these times. And one of the things that the historians kind of wrote about was the, the real oddity or the starkness of all of the money that was spent in a place that had experienced quite a bit of poverty. There's a lot of poverty here, but he's just blowing money like crazy. Because remember, this was about his plan. His plan was to take over Greece, and he needed to, to create such an awe-inspiring moment that all 127 provinces would say, boom, we're in. We support you in all of this. There are even rules in this drunken party, verse 8. The drinking was done according to the law. Huh. Well, there you go. It was a massive drunken party, but it says there was no compulsion, meaning they didn't force anybody to drink. Uh, you wanted to, <laughs> and so you weren't forced to uh, at, at all. So we get to verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to the, to the king Xerxes. And so imagine all these men come from all around this, the, the, the nation, and they bring their wives and so while the men are all over in this party uh, talking about war and schmoozing, the women uh, have their own party with the queen. This is, this is like the official, the official wife of King Xerxes, Queen Vashti, and she's having this party for women. And so at the end of all of this, verse 10, on the seventh day, so this is on the really the the 187th day of partying. You can imagine how bombed out of mind they were. When the heart of the king was merry with wine, so he was drunk. Probably not a good idea for the leader of the, of the nation to be drunk, but he did. And you know what happens when you get drunk? You make bad decisions. Surprise, surprise, he makes a bad decision. And so he asks his eunuchs there, his servants, um, who served him, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. He wanted to demonstrate his wealth. He wanted to demonstrate what kind of great guy he was, and so he wanted to show off his wife, show off his wife's beauty. And so he says, go get her, 
Um, and he wanted her to prance out on display so that all the men in the room could drool over his wife. I don't think he probably would have made this decision had he not been drunk, but he was drunk, and so he made this decision. And uh, let's just say it didn't go well. <laughs> if, uh, if your husband, ladies, wanted you to go uh, get drooled over by a bunch of men, what would you, what would you say? Well, uh, Queen Vashti, verse 12, refused to come to the king's command. And that was a problem. Uh, that was a problem. Nobody said no to the king. Nobody said no to the king. Nobody ever. Not even the wife. Nobody did. And so you can imagine the problem that, th- that this happened. You know, I mean, she says, um, no, she knows her husband really well. <laughs> and she says, no, thank you. And imagine, though, the, the problem that the king who is trying to put his best face forward, he's trying to get everybody on board. And so now he has to say in front of everybody, the, the main event is not showing up. We're going to have to change our plans because the, the, the main event, the, 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 what I wanted you to see, is not even showing showing up. And so imagine all of the murmuring that began in all of this. I mean, if he can't even get his wife to, how in the world he can lead a war? You know, you know what I mean? The, the concern that started to come over all of these things. And so trouble is definitely a brewing here. Uh, verse 13. And so the king said to the wise men, these are, this is his cabinet. This is just a description of his cabinet to the wise men who understood the times, meaning under, really knew what was going on with um, with him, with the law, with, um, with the nation. For it was a custom of the king to speak before all who knew the law and justice. So this is his, his cabinet. And they go into sheer crisis mode. This doesn't like, seem like a big deal to you, probably. But this was the, the biggest deal ever. Because they never had this ever happen before. <laughs> the, the queen saying no was a big deal but they almost really didn't know what big a deal that it was. And so he gathers the cabinet together to try to figure out, well, what do we do? There's no law about this. There's no, what do we do? And so they could have picked any, they could have decided to do anything. They could have decided to make her go deliver pizzas for Domino's. Right? They, they could, they, there could have been any punishment ever that they decided. They could have killed her. They could have done anything that they wanted. There was no precedence for what we were to do in the situation. So they all get together and they start to, to, to figure out what to do. But the implications are huge from his goal for war. If the queen won't obey the king, then are any of his generals going to obey him? I mean, can he really lead a war if even his wife isn't going to follow what he's saying? And so there are a lot of uncertainties that are immediately, boom, brought up to mind in his grand plans of this entire proposition. And so the council gets together, and we have Mimucan. That's not how you really say it, but that's how we're saying it. Mimucan, and he's the spokesman for the cabinet. He's the one that makes the, makes the declarations of kind of the, the, the conclusions of... Um, of the cabinet, and I think Mimu Can had some wife problems. <laughs> I think he had some women problems myself, um, based on 
what he says here, verse 17, for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, well, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to his presence and she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Madai who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the kings and princes princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. (laughs) He's probably used to his wife already like being on him all the time. He's like, okay, if my wife figures out she can say no at any time, I just don't even want to go home. You know, this is going to be problems if women can, can be like that. He's afraid that all of the women in the entire nation are going to see what the, what the queen did, and he's so concerned that the life is going to be terrible for all of the princes that have come from a whole 127 provinces of this nation, and, and that's going to cause a problem in all of their homes, which is going to be an issue for this war effort. Remember, I mean, it's all about the war effort, and so there's problems. If there are problems in these homes, that's a problem. And so, um, if it pleases the king, he says, verse 19, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Madai. Have you heard of the law of the Medes and Persians? There's There's a uniqueness to the law of the Medes and Persians, and that is that it is irrevocable. When, when you make a, a, a law in, within the law of the Medes and Persians, nobody breaks this law. Now, this is not Old Testament law. This is not law from God, let's be clear. This isn't law from God. This is not Old Testament law. This isn't Christian law. This is pagan law, the law of the Medes and the Persians. And this, this law is, a, is very hand, heavy-handed. Not this one specifically, but the way that their law books operated was very heavy-handed, meaning that nobody could rise above it. Nobody could amend it, not even the king. Once it becomes law, everybody must live up to the law of the Medes and the Persians. Uncancelable, unamendable, that's it. And we're going to find that that is um, very important to know as we continue in this book. And so he suggests here uh, that according to the law of uh, Persia and Madai, so that it cannot be repealed, that's what it's referring, it cannot be, once you make that, it's, it, you cannot repeal it, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Xerxes and let the king give her royal position to another, meaning you're no longer the official wife, you are now banished, and we're going to find someone else who's going to be the wife. And the king's edict, which he uh, will make his heard throughout the kingdom, graze it as it is, then all of the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. <laughs> okay, well, if you have to create an edict for women to honor their husbands, the honor is already gone, you know? <laughs> it, it, it's already over. It, the, the respect is already gone. Um, but, okay, it's now a law. And so, verse 21, of course, this pleased the king. Okay, let's, let's make that the law. Out, out, with the, uh, out with the wife and out with, uh, out with everything that we knew and we're going to have a new wife coming in and all the women must be obedient. And just like that, the queen is set aside. And uh, I mean, this is like a completely bummer ending to a big party, right? <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I've been here for 180 days, giant party, 187 days. And at the very end... The queen is booted. There you go. <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's the ending to the party. I guess everybody goes home now. 
And so chapter one is all about this invitation to the banquet and the queen rejecting that and the queen being banished. And the context, obviously, now then is going to flow into next week when we have to select a new queen. Um, But these are the first aspects of God's providence or his sovereignty. And God overseeing all the little aspects of all this. Now, Esther has not even been in this chapter. She doesn't even know what's going on. She's not here. She's not a part of any of this. But every single one of these things are going to dramatically affect her life. But she doesn't know anything about it. This is God's sovereignty. God is always working in the... He is control of the entire universe, of, of every aspect. And this idea of God's sovereignty isn't just, doesn't just apply to Esther uh, and to King Xerxes. It applies in your life as well. This changes, this, this idea of God being infinitely in control of everything, it really changes the life of a Christian. Um, it, changes the, it changes two things primarily. At least I wrote down two things. It just kind of stands out to me. It removes any reason for worry, and it changes the way we make decisions. It removes any reason for worry, and it, and it changes the way that we make decisions. That, that if we rest in the fact that God really can do what we just read here, if God really can do this, if he can really cause all things to work together to, for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose, when we rest in the fact that this is really true, not only does God love you, but he has the ability to do something about it. Now, now where's the worry for when it comes to our kids, or when it comes to our job? or when it comes to where we're going to live, or what our income is like, or the medical diagnosis from Kaiser, or whatever it is. When we know that God is infinitely control of every aspect of the universe that he created, it removes the reason for worry, because God is there in every, in every reason. He's working all those things out. And it also changes the way that we make decisions. I mean, think about this. Just think about it. I, a lot of decisions that we make in life are not, uh, they're not like biblical, like sin, no sin sort of decisions, you know. Do I turn right or left? Uh, th- those decisions aren't necessarily, you know, do my kids go to this school or that school? Do I take this job or that job? Do I marry this one or that one? Like all, all these things aren't outlined in Scripture, and sometimes you can be frozen in fear. What if I make the wrong decision? What if, I, what, if I, what if I turn left instead of right? What if I move into that house and that's not the one that God has for me? But see, if we, enter, if we really believe in God's sovereignty, that, that he can work all things out for, his, for, for the good to those who love God and call according to his purpose, so isn't he able to, if we take a left, isn't he able to send us another couple lefts to just to make the right again, Right? <laughs> Yeah, I get it. I know you want to pray, and I know you want to wait, and, and it, you know, it's easier just to make the right, you know, instead of making three lefts to make the right. But God is sovereign. And if you're not sure where to go and you need to make a decision, I mean, prayers like that are, are common for me. Hey, God, I, I need to do something. I just don't know what it is. COVID has been like that like crazy. Well, God, I don't know what it is. I think I'm going to do this one. And, and, if, and if it's no good, uh, please let uh, the elders know. <laughs> Here we go. And God in his sovereignty works those things out 
for our good and for, our glo- for his glory and for, and for our good. And so I hope you notice God's sovereignty in each of these chapters. I won't have much time to, to focus on it like I have tonight, you know. But I want you to see it every single night in the next 10 weeks, God's sovereignty. in. And I hope you see it not only here, but maybe you start to see it in your own life and just look back over your life. I mean, why are you sitting in these seats right now? Here's a, here's a good one of God's sovereignty. On uh, January, February, and March, this session of primetime, two years ago, 2019, we were studying uh, uh, Matthew, the Olivet Discourse in the Bible. The Olivet Discourse is, is where his, his followers ask Jesus, hey, um, so how do we know like, uh, what the end times is like? And so we, we read all of Jesus' answers about what the end times are like and, and the specific details to that. And at the beginning in January, we had known nothing about COVID. And as things started to march along, if you listen to those, you'll, you'll start to hear me mention um, COVID. But I think I even called it the wrong word a few times because it's still so new, you know. And, and by, the, by, by the time that we finished that, COVID was full-blown. And people started asking, is this the end times? Is this it? What, isn't that amazing orchestration of God to allow his Christians to study the book, to answer that question, to settle our hearts, just literally the week before it all happens? This is God's sovereignty. You can see it in every part of our lives. And that's just one of the many, if you start to look for it, yeah, God can move around things any way that he wants. But it's 8 o'clock. He moved the clock, so let's pray. <laughs> Well, dear God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, 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 the settledness that comes from knowing that you are sovereign over it all. And as we are your people, we know we are called according to your purpose. And so now we're, we can rest settled to know that you work all of these things out for your glory and our good, even if we can't imagine the, the goodness in it. And we praise you for that. And I pray that this um, brings comfort to hearts this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I'll see you, my friends, on Sunday.